As Janet said a minute ago, I have been teaching here at Tyndale for 24 years, and here I have found many friends, and here I have found myself deemed friend to many others. It's been my privilege to preach many times at the Tyndale Chapel. In fact, during my sojourn here at Tyndale, I think I have preached more frequently in the Tyndale Chapel than any other member of the faculty. And in my final sermon as a faculty member, I think it appropriate therefore to speak of that friend, says the book of Proverbs, that friend who has promised to stick closer than a brother. Our first lesson this morning is from Genesis 22. We shall begin reading at verse 9. It is the, an excerpt from the Akeda, the binding of Isaac. And concerning Genesis 22, there is more published in Jewish literature than is published on the rest of the book of Genesis put together. In the Jewish mindset, very few passages of scripture loom larger than this. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here am I. The angel of the Lord said, Do not your lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 2 John. I won't say 2 John 1 because there is only one chapter in 2 John. Our lesson is brief. It's verse 12 and verse 12 only. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Our gospel lesson this morning is from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. We shall read verses 12 to 17, John 15. 
Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Thanks be to God for these readings from his own holy word. Not so long ago, a woman asked me, asked me good-naturedly, what I thought I had been doing throughout five decades of ministry, or at least what I had aimed at doing. I told her I have wanted, above all else, to foster intimacy. Intimacy with God and intimacy with others. Now, this isn't to say that I've spent 50 years in touchy-feely mindlessness, but it is to say that however cerebral I may appear, the purpose of my cerebralism is never to leave hearers behind, let alone show off. My purpose is always to enlarge understanding so as to increase intimacy. The more God is understood, the more he can be loved. And the more he is loved, the more he can be understood. Whereupon, understanding and intimacy interpenetrate each other and spiral up together, always taking us deeper and deeper into the heart of God. And as much can be said for our life with each other. All my life I've craved intimacy. But I haven't craved it in vain because I've never lacked it. To say I've never lacked it, however, doesn't preclude my craving it still. For when our desire for intimacy is met, we are satisfied to be sure, yet never satiated. We are profoundly satisfied, but never surfeited. After all, the Apostle Paul longed for greater intimacy with his Lord just because his life in Christ was already indescribably rich. Shortly before his death, our Lord took his closest followers aside and told them, No longer do I call you servants, for servants don't know what their master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now the customary word, Greek word for servant, as you know, is diakonos. In the text just quoted, however, from John's gospel, the Greek word used is doulos. And strictly speaking, it doesn't mean servant, it means slave. No longer do I call you servant slaves because slaves are never taken into their owner's confidence. Slaves, we know, merely do what they're told to do without knowing why they have to do it or to what end. A servant slave is merely a witless tool. Not so with a friend. Our friend, as opposed to mere acquaintance, is someone with whom we share mind and heart. In the upper room, on the eve of his death, Jesus made known to the disciples what he knew of his father. 
Earlier in his ministry, he had cried out, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, restoration. In the upper room, the disciples, however laboring and heavy laden to date, we're very shortly going to know a much greater laboring and a much greater load. And in the upper room, Jesus rendered them his friends. Their new level of intimacy with him admitted them to a new knowledge of an engagement with the Father. This, of course, would sustain them in the difficult days ahead, and more than sustain them, it would be the occasion of their restoration. Since Jesus Christ is God incarnate, to be his friend is to be friend of God. In the Older Testament, there are two men who are specifically named friend of God, Abraham, Moses. Abraham is the foreparent of all believers, the foreparent of all who put their trust in God. Their trust? How much trust? At the call of God, Abraham left old securities and familiarities behind and ventured forth to the land to which God had appointed him. Abraham ventured everything on God, living in what could only strike onlookers as utmost insecurity, insecurity so utterly radical as to appear utterly ridiculous. At the call of God, Abraham went forth knowing nothing of his future, except that his future held the God who had called him, the God who had made a promise to him, the God who had insisted that he would be Abraham's unfailing friend as surely as Abraham was now his. Was Abraham's trust tested? Many times, but never tested as it was that day when the voice said to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me on Moriah. Now, you know the rest of the story. It happens to be my favorite story in the entire Hebrew Bible. And I repeat it. I revisit this story every morning at 5 or 5.15 when the alarm goes off. First, I repeat my ordination vows, as I've done every day for 47 years. And then I revisit this story. Take your son, your only son, At the end, Abraham's trust in God remained iron fast, even when the ground of that trust seemed to have disappeared. Abraham's trust remained iron fast, even when the reason for his trust was no longer discernible. Abraham's trust remained iron fast, even when his obedience to the command of God, sacrifice Isaac, contradicted the promise of God, descendants as numberless as the sands of the seashore. Abraham's trust remained iron fast when, from a human perspective, there was no resolution to the contradiction. Abraham's trust got him through anguish and incomprehension, got him through to the exclamation only days later, chronologically, but no doubt eons later to him, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. 
Moses, too, is named friend of God. Moses is the transmitter of the Torah, that way which gives shape and structure, integrity and identity to the obedience of God's people. While shallow Christians misunderstand Torah as promoting legalism, the truth is that uh, the obedience rendered Torah is obedience the believer renders the person of the living God through the vehicle of the Torah. And just as shallow Christians misunderstand Torah as promoting legalism, when in fact it promotes righteousness, so shallow Christians misunderstand Torah as promoting servitude when in fact it promotes freedom. In fact, just because Torah claimed Israel's obedience, it yields freedom. The medieval rabbis used to say, when Torah entered the world, freedom entered the world. Well, of course. To obey God is to be spared the servitude of sin, isn't it? To obey God is to be freed to live in accordance with our true nature, namely as children of God. Didn't Jesus, who is Torah incarnate, just remember that. Jesus Christ is Torah incarnate. Didn't he say, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed? Like Abraham and Moses of old, like the disciples of Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry, we too, you and I, are summoned to be friend of God. As soon as the people in the era of our Lord's public ministry heard the word friend. Three vivid pictures flashed into their imagination. The first had to do with the friend of the king. In the courts of oriental kings, friends of the kings were those who had access to the king at all times. Friends of the king were admitted to the king's bedroom even at daybreak. In other words, the king spoke with his friends before he began the day's work before he probed the day's perplexities, before he troubled himself with all the things that trouble any ruler. The king gave his friends access to him when before he spoke with generals about military campaigns or spoke with statesmen about domestic strife or spoke with ambassadors about foreign nations. When Christ the king told his disciples that henceforth he would deem them friends, friends of the king. He was telling them that from this moment they would be granted an access to him and would know an intimacy with him that most profoundly identified their relationship with him before they went out to contend in his name with problems and perplexities with principalities and powers. To be Christ's friend doesn't mean merely that he makes us privy to the reason for the work he wants us to do. The slave, remember, doesn't know the reason for anything. To be Christ's friend means he grants us access to him and intimacy with him before we are conscripted or appointed to do anything. Intimacy with a friend, after all, is an end in itself. It's not a means to getting something done. Intimacy with a friend is an end in itself. 
the fusion of two friends and their unimpeded interpenetration of each other is so very glorious as to need no justification beyond itself. The word friend had yet another meaning in the ancient world. Friends of Caesar were soldiers, soldiers who had proven themselves undeflectably loyal. And how had they proven themselves loyal? They had remained steadfast, steadfast throughout assaults, hardship, suffering. They hadn't deserted or revolted or sought another leader or even complained when battle campaigns with Caesar had found them clobbered, had even found them in such pain that only the danger they were in could distract them from their suffering. The friends of Caesar counted it such an honor to soldier with Caesar that no campaign with him was too arduous and no adversity too wearing. I am told that many people today in church are put off by military images. Too bad. The fact is there are a great many military images throughout Scripture, including Paul's advice to Timothy, put up with your share of hardship in Christ's army. In Jewish circles, the word friend had a third meaning. A man's friend was his best man at his wedding. Plainly, the best man is intimate with the groom, but not intimate only. The best man assists the groom and is a witness on the groom's behalf. Now here, the imagery borrowed from weddings in Scripture becomes somewhat convoluted. Scripture speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. We must understand, of course, that it's the church collectively that is Christ's bride. Individual Christians, on the other hand, are declared to be Christ's friend or his best man. Collectively, all Christians of both genders constitute Christ's bride. Individually, all Christians of either gender are his best man. Each one of us is invited and appointed to assist him in his work and bear witness to him in his truth. Does our Lord need our assistance? Either his friends do what he insists needs to be done on earth, or it doesn't get done at all. Remember Augustine. Without him, we cannot. And without us, he will not. As for bearing witness to the truth, we should all be aware by now that the vocation of witness looms so very large in Scripture just because at the end of the day, we can and ever must bear witness to the truth when we have long been unable to argue people into the truth. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that for 47 years, that's as long as I've been ordained, For 47 years, I've been concerned with fostering intimacy with God and intimacy with our fellows as well. I'm convinced that intimacy with our fellows is as rare as intimacy with God. What passes too often for human friendship is unreal. What passes for friendship too often is a compound of superficial camaraderie and companionship of convenience plus 
subtle exploitation of usefulness. Friendship should be, but too often isn't. Friendship should be a meeting with another person so deep that all attempts at controlling are forsworn and all attempts at profiting are renounced. Genuine friendship is meeting someone where the person, not merely the appearance or the usefulness, where the person of the other becomes known. And what is it to know another person? Here I must mention once more the Jewish thinker whose stamp is on me everywhere, Martin Buber. Reflecting the logic of Scripture, Buber correctly expounds, what we know of another person is the difference that person has made to us, the alteration which meeting that person has affected in us. What I know of my friend is simply the change in me. What I know of my friend isn't the information I have about him. What I know of my friend is simply the change that has occurred in me, says Buber, in the course of the relationship. What I know of you is the difference that meeting you has made in me. And what you people know of me is the difference that meeting me has made in you. With respect to our human friendships, I've long recognized the need for physical proximity. I've long been moved at the conclusion of two of the shortest books of the Bible, 2 John, 3 John. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, but I hope to come to see you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. There is simply no substitute for seeing others face-to-face, no paper trail, no fax, no telephone call, no email comes close to seeing each other face-to-face. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who first drew my attention to the concluding verses of 2nd and 3rd John. In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer pointed out that Christians find immense joy in each other's physical presence. Bonhoeffer wrote Life Together during his time as leader of an underground seminary in Finkenwalde. The Nazis were in power everywhere throughout Germany. The gospel had been sabotaged in the national church, the state church. There were 18,000 pastors in the national church. There were only a few score pastors in the confessing church. The confessing church was struggling to find pastors whom it could trust to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of a religionized version of Nazi ideology. The confessing church became smaller, smaller, smaller every day as the penalties for supporting it increased. Bonhoeffer prepared pastors for the confessing church when those pastors knew that they faced betrayal and arrest and horrors they couldn't imagine. And in this context, Bonhoeffer insisted that the physical presence of fellow Christians brings a joy that can't be brought any other way. Nothing in my life comes close to the trials of a pastor in the confessing church in Nazi Germany. Nonetheless, 
There have been developments in my life, including my life as a minister of the church, when I have needed to see a friend face to face as I have needed nothing else. And in the providence of God, such a friend has been available. For he who does all things well has not only never left me without his comfort and consolation, he has also never left me without that human comfort and consolation whose arms are the vehicle of the everlasting arms. In it all, I have never wavered in my conviction, namely, Martin Buber was both correct and profound when he wrote years ago, all real living is meeting. Let's, together all, let's gather together all that I've attempted to say this morning. By God's grace and the faith his grace has wrought in us, we've been admitted to the innermost mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are one with Abraham in that we venture all on God and one with Moses in that we rejoice to obey the one who has redeemed us. We have access to the King of Kings at all times and in all circumstances. We aspire to be found undeflectably loyal to our leader. Our Lord has honored us by naming us best man, woman, as he calls us to assist him in his work and bear witness to him in his truth. It all adds up to joy in the master and love for one another. For while you and I are blessed with friends and we surely aspire to be friends, he, our Lord, he is that friend, says the book of Proverbs, who will ever, ever, stick closer than a brother. Blessings on you, everyone. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Seeking Jesus Christ, you did come. In Christ's abiding presence, go now in peace. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon and remain with you always. Go in peace.